Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. This week, we talk about Bitcoin, discussing the reasonable arguments for owning it and why we're sceptical about it as an investment, with Nikki Eggers, Head of Investments, Luke Pierce, Investment Strategist, and Haoran Wee, Senior Investment Strategist. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello, welcome to another edition of Word on the Street. This week, we're going to delve into, frankly, what seems probably one of the most polarizing topics at the moment, Bitcoin or cryptocurrency. Clients have been increasingly asking for our views. And while we've briefly discussed them on previous episodes. Today, we thought we'd go into a bit more detail on it. Maybe it's a sharing why we perhaps sound a bit sceptical and also some of the more popular arguments for owning Bitcoin, you know, where where we feel those are robust and where we think perhaps they're less than that, but also to to just propose some reasonable arguments as, as we see them. To aid me with this, I'm joined by Haram Wee and Luke Pierce, who are key parts of our asset allocation team. So before we dig into Bitcoin, how can you give us any sort of updates, anything noteworthy that, that you're seeing in markets over the past week or so? Yeah, hi. The main market move uh, over the past week has been the rise in developed government bond yields driven primarily by higher interest rate expectations in the US. So what we've been seeing is that investors have been pulling forward the expected timeline for the next Fed rate hike from around mid-2024 up till 2023, and then steepening the pace of hikes beyond that point. Uh, This in turn has been driven by optimism on fiscal stimulus and also the improving COVID situation in the US with case counts falling and the pace of vaccinations rising. Uh, The higher yields also had spillover effects on equity markets with growth stocks like tech uh, deemed to be harmed by higher rates underperforming, while the rate sensitive stocks like financials and value stocks have outperformed. So that's mainly it. Obviously, very positive around the improving COVID situation. So clearly, that's that's to be welcomed. And perhaps we can we can just start with a bit of background on on the price movements that we've seen in Bitcoin. Can we get a little bit of context on that? How? Yeah, sure. Uh, so just to put a bit of context into this. Uh, we've seen an enormous run up in the price of Bitcoin over the past year, or so uh, surpassing its previous highs back in two thousand seventeen. And after falling to a little over 5,000 in March last year, uh, the, the price of Bitcoin steadily rose to around 20,000 or so in December last year. And since then, Bitcoin has more than doubled and repeatedly breached its all-time highs. It's uh, currently trading slightly above uh, 50,000, and although it did fall sharply early in the week. And so given its recent winning streak, uh, it, it has once again sparked a lot of interest among investors, uh, primarily around this question on whether or not investors should now invest in Bitcoin. And I guess there are many reasons why people might want to own it. One of the sort of key arguments here seems to be the notion that Bitcoin itself is a is a store of value. I think a, a lot of, of advocates for Bitcoin look at historic government spending and debt levels and and the unprecedented monetary policy actions like you know, the quantitative easing that we've seen from central banks and, and fear this is going to lead to potentially 
wild inflation and and huge currency debasement. So in that context, I guess, you know, the argument there is Bitcoin could be an attractive store of value and hedge against this scenario. Luke, what, what are your thoughts on on those arguments? Whenever I read arguments for for owning Bitcoin, they they typically start with quite a lengthy discussion around you know the current monetary system, you know, why it might be unsuitable, or why the Fed or any other kind of central bank um, is is some kind of nefarious organization. So yeah, it's probably probably wise to start here. And I think this is actually probably the biggest one to unpack as well. To be honest, there's a lot of different strands of arguments in here, which kind of get wrapped up into one. But ultimately, I think they are mostly hinged on um, an incomplete understanding of, of monetary economics. So if we start with central banks, you heard a lot of these arguments put forward, actually, when the Fed first started embarking on their quantitative easing programs just after the great financial crisis. So in fact, there was actually a now infamous open letter to uh, the then Fed Chair Ben Bernanke from many economists, many journalists, as well as a lot of prominent investors, essentially urging the Fed to reconsider their actions. And the line of thinking back then was the Fed was you know, printing a lot of money, flooding the economy with it, and that would lead to ultimately huge bouts of inflation and a lot of currency debasement as well. So kind of similar arguments to to what you're hearing uh, from Bitcoin advocates today. And I think, you know, while this argument has its appeals, I do think it's wrong for a couple of reasons. So first, um, if you look at the inflation data in the US or or the UK or Japan or even Europe, really for the past uh, 10 years, you, you kind of only need to look at that data to realize that central bank actions, including the quantitative easing programs that we've seen, they're not a panacea for generating inflation. In fact, central banks have actually had the exact opposite problem. Uh, you know, for the most part of the last decade, they've actually undershot their inflation targets. Um, second, uh, admittedly related point is that this argument relies on um, a fundamental misunderstanding of the effects of quantitative easing, as well as how money is actually created and lent into the real economy. And there's been quite a lot of literature um, detailing what actually occurs here. Um, if anybody wants uh, a nerdy read on the subject, the Bank of England wrote a great paper on this called Money Creation in the Modern Economy. And it's written by Michael McLee, Amar Radia and Ryland Thomas. Brilliant. Well, thank, thanks for that, uh, for that recommendation. But I suspect not all of our listeners, dare I say it, including me, might have the, have the urge nor the capacity to read 30 pages on, on money creation. But what are the key takeaways from, from that paper, if you can condense it for us? Yeah, sure. No, it's uh, very understandable and uh, you know exactly why, why we are here. And you know, this may seem like semantics at this point, but I, I do really think understanding the semantics is almost a necessary evil here to understanding the crux of why we're not going to get anything close to Know, hyperinflation as a result of central banks. So the, the first takeaway is to really forget your textbook definition of how money is lent. So banks are often described as just intermediaries. So you know, they take in deposits and then lend them out to other customers who want to borrow. But this isn't quite right. Uh, in reality, when banks issue loans, they actually simultaneously create a matching deposit. So that, that deposit is not taken from you know, another customer's account. And um, now that doesn't mean that banks can, you know, can lend whatever they want. But if you think about it, um, a customer's deposit is a liability for the bank. So the idea that this can be lent out is is a little strange in in the first place. 
Now, you might be thinking, you know, why, did, why does this matter? Well, if you can kind of understand and accept this, then you can see that the overall supply of money in the economy isn't actually controlled by the Fed or any other central bank. It's actually determined by uh, consumers' appetite for borrowing, as well as banks' willingness to lend. Now, central banks can indirectly influence this through lowering the cost of borrowing by, by lowering interest rates, but it can't force consumers to borrow or you know, force banks to lend. Um, the way I think about it here is it's the monetary economics equivalent of leading a horse to water. And then you might ask about sort of quantitative easing. You know, surely that is a form of money printing from central banks. And to be honest, I don't think it is in any meaningful sense. So people often describe it as that because they assume that the money the Fed uses to purchase bonds means that actually more money can then be lent out to, to, to consumers. But as we just talked about, that isn't how money is, is lent or created. Um, to be clear, there are you know, very fair criticisms of quantitative easing, but the risks of hyperinflation or mass currency debasement just aren't them. Um, if anything, the, the reasonable criticisms that, that we read about um, seem to be more skewed to the idea that it's actually been ineffective. Um, how? I don't know if you had any, any thoughts here. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks. So uh, I, I think I'll just point out that underneath this whole hyperinflation narrative, I think it lies a certain mistrust of professional economists or policymakers, but also a type of conspiratorial thinking about how central bankers are uh, downright negligent. Uh, they don't know what they're doing or they are deliberately causing hyperinflation. And I think a lot of this is really just due to either disinformation or a fundamental misunderstanding of how monetary economics work, as, as Luke pointed out. And, and, and so... I think to those who are proponents of buying Bitcoin simply because they think hyperinflation or currency debasement is around the corner, I'll, I'll probably just humbly submit to you that you, you may be mis mistaken. Uh, just ask yourselves, uh, how confident are you in your own premises in the first place? And if you are, make sure to do your research. Don't just Google for information or arguments that only confirm your own biases and preconceived notions. Uh, speak to the experts. And by experts, I, I actually mean professional economists, if you can find them, uh, whether in your universities or other workplaces, uh, not just your average financial advisor. And get some credible resources on how money creation actually works in the modern economy. So the Bank of England paper that Luke uh, highlighted just now is actually a great place to start. I'll recommend that to anyone who really want to get into the weeds of it. Noted. Thanks, Hao. And, and that's helpful. I mean, I think, you know, obviously there's some very technical components of what you're talking about there. But but I think, you know, certainly what what I could take from that is that there is perhaps a bit more nuance than is often presented in in some of these arguments. But I guess specifically on on government spending, because there is, you know, a lot of credible debate at the moment over the inflation risks of of coming from that that huge government spending, and and that's that's clearly been been necessary to combat the economic effects of of the coronavirus. But how palpable, how big do you think those risks are? Should should we be concerned about that? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And theoretically, if a stimulus is too big, then it can lead to an overheating economy. And so while the next US fiscal stimulus is that, that package is quite chunky, around 5 to 10% of the economy, uh, the risk of it, I think, uh, leading to, to an overheating of the economy, I, I think it's still, I'll judge it to be still fairly low. And the main reason is because not all of the headline figures will actually be spent in one go. 
So certain expenditures like uh, state and local government aid, investment in education, etc., uh, they won't all be spent in, in in a single year, but rather they'll be spent over the course of the next few years. So the actual total impact of the next stimulus will actually be smaller than what the headline figures will will, will suggest. The the other important thing to bear in mind is that central banks they, today are far better at keeping inflation in check today compared to the past. Uh, probably too good, uh, as Luke pointed out. Uh, the, the last time developed economies like the US experienced uh, hyperinflation or problems with inflation, and that was in, you can argue that's in the 1970s, economic institutions like central banks, they were ran very differently and inflation expectations weren't just as anchored. So we are talking about a completely different macroeconomic environment, a completely different institutional setting here. And should, in the worst case scenario, if inflation were to rise too high, Central banks can simply just raise interest rates and, and 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 curb that. I don't see any strong reason why central banks today will have a particularly hard time pushing back against any sort of potential overheating of the economy. So uh, in very simple terms, no, I, I think at this point, I, I wouldn't be too concerned about structurally higher inflation here. Okay. And so we've covered central banks, we've covered government spending, talked a bit about inflation, but but let's move on to the more popular arguments around owning Bitcoin. It's it's often talked about in the context of a store of value, but also that, that frankly, it's just going to become more widely used as, as currency over time. What, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, so you have started to see a slightly broader acceptance of, of Bitcoin in, in that context. So, for example, PayPal announced late last year that it will begin accepting payment in Bitcoin. But in our view, I think there is still a number of issues right now which are problematic for Bitcoin becoming a, a widely used currency. Um, so the first, if, if one of the main desirable characteristics of a currency is stability. Now, anybody that's been watching the price of Bitcoin, even over the last week or so, will know that Bitcoin is extremely volatile. And so, you know, in that respect, it makes it quite unsuitable as, as a medium of payment. And critics have also noted that the transaction processing capacity of Bitcoin is actually pretty low versus other payment methods. So Bitcoin's network can process roughly five transactions per second, while Visa's, for example, can process roughly 1,700 per second. So in order of, of magnitudes higher. So the, these issues do highlight some of the limitations on Bitcoin's current scalability. And then on top of that, the transaction fees for Bitcoin are actually pretty chunky too. So they, they reached as high as $30 recently, uh, though they have come down uh, a little bit since then, um, which again, just kind of re reinforces um, the unsuitability for means um, as, as payment for any kind of normal goods or service. Uh, how I don't know if you have a, have a take on this as well. Yeah. So the, the other thing to point out here is that a currency like Bitcoin, who has an eventual fixed supply uh, would ultimately be an unlikely candidate to ever become a de facto currency in the first place. Uh, this is because, uh, this may be a bit technical, but it's because if you have an economy that's growing in the long run, but a fixed money supply, what you're doing is to essentially condemn the economy into a permanent state of deflation in the long run, which can be actually just as harmful as hyperinflation. Uh, this is actually precisely one of the reasons why we move from the gold standard to the current monetary system that we have today. I actually can't think of any modern economy or any serious policymaker in those economies that would actually think moving that moving to an economy with a fixed monetary supply uh, would be a good idea. And this, of course, makes it highly unlikely that Bitcoin can ever become a serious contender for a 
ubiquitous currency that's being mass mass adopted. And even if Bitcoin does ever become a more serious currency, you have to ask yourself, why should it be the one currency that actually enters mass adoption uh, out of the hundreds of other cryptocurrencies out there? It doesn't really have to be Bitcoin, right? It can be Ethereum, Litecoin, Dogecoin, etc. So proponents of Bitcoin, if you're investing it, you aren't just making a bet that Bitcoin can be is a viable currency. You're also making a point that out of the hundreds or dozens of cryptocurrencies out there, Bitcoin will be the one that will eventually be the winner. But I think that's highly speculative, right? Yeah, and and obviously you mentioned there PayPal, you know, beginning to accept it as a form of payment and we're also seeing just wider adoption, not, not just from retail investors, but also institutional investors in, in some instances, utilising Bitcoin or, or considering it as a, as a potential investment in, in some of its funds so or in some of their funds. So um, I guess my question here is, with that kind of adoption, is that not surely bullish for the potential um, value of Bitcoin? Yeah, so I, I do think this this is a reasonable bull case on, on why you might you know think the price of Bitcoin could rise from here on that basis, but but it still does rest on the idea that someone will buy it from you at a higher price down the line. Now, you could make a very reasonable case that a lot of other assets actually fit fit that description. So you know, collectible art or or even gold don't necessarily have any intrinsic value in the traditional investment sense. So what, what I mean by that is they don't pay dividends or, or coupons or generate any kind of underlying cash flow, but investors still ascribe value to them nonetheless. And you know we were talking earlier about why we don't necessarily buy into the idea that Bitcoin will be a store of value against central bank actions. But in a very real sense, if enough people believe Bitcoin to be a store of value, whether it's you know based on a correct understanding of, of monetary economics or not, then it will become self-fulfilling. Um, I, I do think, though, from an asset allocation and, and a portfolio perspective, this line of thinking does throw up you know a few problems, though, which I think we discussed you know on the podcast last time, and how you you and I were were discussing this recently as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely, I'll, I'll agree. I think from an asset allocation perspective, uh, th- there are several natural criteria that, that that an asset must meet before it can be included within an investment portfolio for the long term. Uh, the first, I think, is whether and most obvious is whether it has a reasonable case for generating positive expected returns in the future. Now, as as Luke mentioned, Bitcoin isn't like a stock of bonds, so it doesn't yield any dividends or coupons. So the, the only way it can actually have a positive expected return is through continued price appreciation. The problem is the, the only way you can actually justify that continued price appreciation is if Bitcoin actually enters mass adoption as a currency or it's being viewed as a store of value, which is problematic due to the reasons that we talked about earlier. And another very important criteria to assess is whether or not adding Bitcoin into your portfolio actually helps lower the volatility of your overall investment portfolio, either through diversification or because Bitcoin has lower volatility in itself. But here, Bitcoin actually has the, poses the opposite problem because Bitcoin is so volatile. Uh, if, just to give uh, give you some perspective, Bitcoin, the volatility of Bitcoin is, is orders of magnitude greater than the average of stock. So it's so volatile that you can only allocate a small percentage of your portfolio to it before it makes your portfolio completely unbearable from a risk point of view. So if you're an average investor, even if you disagree with all our premises from the very beginning, and you still think Bitcoin is worth adding into your portfolio, 
you should only a rational investor will only allocate a very small amount to it, uh, about very very low single digits to it, because otherwise your portfolio become will really just become too risky for you. And finally, I might be digressing a bit from asset allocation here, but beyond traditional risk measures, there's also the regulatory risk to consider for investors. That's because beyond anti-money uh, laundering requirements, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin aren't actually regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, the, S- the FCA. In fact, the FCA has uh, the, has one inv- uh, consumers that if you buy these types of cryptocurrencies, you're unlikely to have access to the financial ombudsman scheme or, or the financial services compensation scheme. Uh, so if something ever goes wrong, from that point of view, you won't have access to these sort of protections. So we will also urge people to be mindful of these risks as well. I think that's really clear and, and hopefully super helpful to our, our listeners. Look, you know, we're what what we're trying to present here is the balancing arguments um, and, you know, putting our view across. But obviously, it's for, for every person to to think for themselves. But certainly our guidance would be around thinking about your asset allocation and and what you invest in to grow and protect your wealth over time to be much more in the kinds of asset that have you know less volatility and uh, slightly more predictability in them. But of course, if you have the means and you can afford to have fun with with a sort of speculative investment, of course, be our guests. But we're very much looking to to inform and provide our our thoughts on on this. So, of course, as always, How and Luke are often on LinkedIn, and we we very much welcome any any feedback or thoughts on the topic and and other topics that you'd like us to discuss. And as always, if you do want to find some more resources to to understand investments a bit better, please do go to our website. It's barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. With that, thank you very much, Haran, and thank you very much, Luke, and thank you to our listeners. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.